Don't you hate when this happens? You're invited to a remote mansion. You don't know why, but hey, it's a free meal. It's a dark and stormy night. The doors and windows lock, you can't get out, and then someone starts killing off the guests. So annoying. Sounds like it's time for episode 73 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture and art and the art in pop culture. On Pop Art, my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, I'm not a Frenchie, I'm a Belgi host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, filmmaker Jonathan Wysocki, who has chosen as his selection the cult favorite Clue, based on the popular board game, while I have chosen the Neil Simon spoof of locked room detective stories, Murder by Death, both about people invited to a remote location only to encounter homicide. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Jonathan, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? I'm a writer, director, and producer. First feature film, Dramarama, which actually opens with an homage to Clue, came out last year. And I'm also a lecturer at a number of universities, including Chapman University and Occidental College. Great. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Clue. First, some information about the film. Clue is a black comedy mystery film released in 1985. It was directed by Jonathan Lynn and written by John Landis and Jonathan Lynn, inspired by the board game Cluedo, created by Anthony E. Pratt. It stars Eileen Brennan, Colleen Camp, Tim Curry, Bill Henderson, Howard Hessman, Madeline Kahn, Jeffrey Kramer, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKean, Martin Mull, Kelly Nakahara, Lee Ving, Leslie Ann Warren, and Jane Weedlin. Is 1954. A group of people involved in some way with Washington, D.C. and politics have been mysteriously invited to a remote mansion by a Mr. Body. It soon becomes clear that they all came willingly because someone has been blackmailing them and they had little choice. But once there, the doors and windows lock and they can't leave, which becomes a bit irksome when someone starts killing off people. Before beginning with the movie proper, I thought we might talk a bit about two subjects. The first is the subgenre of what is often called old dark house movies, as well as one akin to that, the locked room murder mystery. These are types of movies that now got their own subgenre, and they often overlap and coexist in the same movie. Now, an old dark house movie is one where people get stuck in an old dark house, often during rainstorms and sometimes invited and for whatever reason they can't leave. And a locked room murder mystery is when the murder occurs in a place where no one can get in or out. And so the murderer has to be someone already there. So what do you think is the appeal of these subgenre movies? I feel like the appeal is about the characters themselves not being able to go anywhere. And so you get to watch the machinations of usually disparate types as they are stuck in a high stakes situation where they can't escape. The success of the particular film is really dependent on what kind of alchemy those characters have with one another. I think you make some very good points there. It certainly is one where you get a lot of actors often name actors and that immediately is a lot of fun but the setup is immediately tension filled yes they can't leave they're stuck there and often someone is committing murder so it's also very claustrophobic and there's that puzzle that you have to figure out the answer to it's one of the reasons why i like mysteries and mystery movies they are often whodunits it's also semi-existential the world becomes absurd and it makes no sense but ultimately it isn't existential because everything is resolved by the end until it all makes sense again. It's only an aberration in the world. It's not actually the way the world is. To be really hoity-toity about it, the modernist period, which ended basically with World War II and the atomic bomb, said we could solve our own problems. And that's what these types of movies are. They always solve their own problems in some way, and the world comes out right again. But this was followed by existentialism, which says everything is absurd and we can't solve the problems of the world. These kind of films are interesting to me in that way of what it might say about an undercurrent of what is going on and how it reflects the philosophy of the time. I love that idea. I think to it, to your same point, they often do present some kind of a mirror of whenever they are made. Exactly. And the ones we're talking about today are both satires of these movies, which you wouldn't see very much at time that these movies were made. There might be a lot of humor in them, but generally they often weren't satire. So yes, by the time these movies are made, we've reached a point where we're satirizing them. But there also is the issue of postmodernism and post-postmodernism when I'm talking about satires, because postmodernism arrived in the U.S. along the 60s 
in the 70s. And for me, postmodernism in this context is when everything from the past, from a Greek play to a fart joke, is considered equal when it comes to be used in a work of art. One is automatically no better than the other. And I also often say postmodernism is when they don't know they are doing it, but postmodernism is when not only do they know they are doing it, they are winking at the audience and letting them know they were doing it. So this began a golden age of satires, which is just perfect for postmodernism and post-postmodernism. Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, and the Zucker Brothers. Yes, you basically described my childhood and teenage years in terms of what I consumed. So delightful to watch all of those films from the 70s and 80s in particular that were so cleverly taking the tropes from previous decades and, as you say, putting them into a satirical lens, but also in a very postmodern way. I mean, Blazing Saddles is just mind-blowing in its postmodernity in terms of how it's taking not just the tropes of Westerns, but also mixing in what's happening at the end of the civil rights movement and the cinema itself in the studio system, creating a movie within a movie by the end of the film. I ate those films up with a fork and spoon when I was younger. Yeah, they did become very meta after a while. And I also think it's there's this idea that if during the golden age of Hollywood, if anyone went to the studios and said, I have a great idea, let's make a movie based on a board game, I think they would just be left out of the studio. But around this time, if you went to the studios and said, let's make a movie based on a board game, something that would be a ridiculous idea in the past, they would say, oh, yes, not only should we make a movie based on a board game, but board games haven't been made into movies yet. So. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that so proves your point of the effects of postmodernism in terms of the origin of this film. Right. There's no reason not to make a movie based on a board game. It's as good a reason to make a movie based on a great classic by, say, Dickens. I would add, I know we haven't gotten to the reception yet, but I also feel like the very negative reception to this film from critics stems from them thumbing their noses at the fact that this was originated with a board game. I think I do remember some of that as well when it came out. Why did you choose this film? I saw this film when I was very young. I saw it when it first came out in the movie theater. I have really deep nostalgia for it. I just find the comedy and the cast, the thrills and chills to be completely captivating. And it's something that kept with me as one of those films that you rewatch all the time, particularly with my friends, decade after decade. One of the things that I find really interesting about this film is this dialogue around whether or not it's actually a timeless comedy or if it is just a product of its time and just the people who are from that generation like the film, that it's something that is is maybe not universally agreed upon as a classic film. I myself am always trying to be objective when I look at Clue and then I find myself falling into it emotionally every single time. It really sort of makes me question the role that nostalgia plays in spectatorship, where your emotional tie to something from when you saw it as a child can override objectivity in looking at the film itself. Yes, nostalgia can play a very big role. But do you think it still holds up? I do. It's funny because I, of course, rewatched it for this and I tried to keep my detached objective hat on. I was very critical of maybe the first 20 minutes of the film. And then once Mr. Body is killed and the actors just go off the rails, I got sucked in again. I feel like it's still a great movie. (laughs) I feel like it's still so much fun. I think you made a very interesting point there, especially in relation to how I feel about the movie. The fact that you're going through the first 20 minutes and then it goes off the rails and that's when it becomes fun because I think in many ways I will agree with you on that. I don't remember when I first saw it. In fact, except for this time when I went with some friends who loved the movie, and we went to a midnight show of it because a theater company would act out the movie on the stage while the movie was showing behind it. Mm. I may never have seen it all the way through until that moment, and in many ways not seen it all the way through until now, because now I'm not distracted by people acting out the scenes on the street. That sounds sounds like a lot to ingest. (laughs) 
In full disclosure, there are things I like about it. I didn't see it when it first came out. I think the reviews influenced me on that. But what I would do often is I would end up watching parts of it here and there. It's actually a very good movie to go to sleep to because I tend to go to sleep to movies that have lots of dialogue and often funny dialogue. This is one of these movies that will do that. And it's not so good that it keeps me awake, if that makes any sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. (laughs) But this time around, as you say, once the actors start going off the rails, I did get caught up in the goofy energy. Ultimately, I had a very good time. What are some of your favorite scenes? Anything that has to do with the physical comedy, I feel like the actors are so present in their bodies that their physical actions make me laugh every single time I see it, whether it's Mrs. White breaking a glass against the fireplace or everyone slamming into each other in the middle of a hallway. I have a particular fondness for funny women, so pretty much anything that Madeline Kahn, Eileen Brennan, or Lizzie M. Warren do or say make me laugh. I particularly love both sequences where they all have to pay up with one another and search the house because it's that delicious tension that goes back to Abbott and Costello and their horror films where it's comedy and thrills at the same time and they're writing the line between each other. The tone of those scenes is still so delightful to me. After the second version, when the lights go off and we have three murders in a row, (laughs) the sequence of them silently going from dead body to dead body, sort of shrugging their shoulders at each death, it just makes me laugh every single time I watch it. There's just something so delicious about all of those actors chewing up the scenery. I certainly agree when they're running around from room to room. I find that a lot of fun. I'm not sure why, because all they're doing is running from room to room, but there's just something so absurd about it all. I actually rather like a scene that should not work. It just should not work. But it's when Tim Curry is recapping the whole movie. Yes. <laughs> that, that should be boring. It should be annoying. But it's not. It's a lot of fun. And he's very good. He really carries that off. I agree. And I think that there's, again, there's an athleticism to all of their performances, but particularly him in that scene. It gives me the same feelings that Donald O'Connor gives in uh, Singing in the Rain, the make laugh routine. There's something manic about it where you're watching someone at the top of their craft who are literally going to walk through exactly what happened at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I'm going, I know the plot. Why are you telling me the plot again? Right, yes. (laughs) It's very funny. Directed by Jonathan Lynn. This is his very first feature film as director. He was mainly a writer of television. What do you think of his direction? I find it quite impressive in that when I was rewatching it, this tone of a lot of it is really quite tricky. The script has so many goofy twists and is trying to convey all of the different murder mystery aspects of it on top of the completely wacky slapstick comedy. However he's crafted the tone is the correct tone. He knows when to let the actors shine comedically. He seems to know when to make sure to get the pieces of the mystery that you need to know. A lot of that is really exposition. The exposition is just very quick doesn't drag the film down. One of the difficulties of mystery movies is at some point, someone has to have a bunch of exposition to explain what goes on. And we have three of them here because we have three solutions to the murder. Right. But every mystery movie tends to have that and it can be very difficult to pull off. I have to be honest that I think the direction is actually the weakest part of the movie. That or the editing. I don't think they quite get the comic timing right, especially in the beginning. The laughs aren't quite as strong as I think they should be. So when you get away from that, where you don't have this verbal comic timing and you get to the second part where everybody's running around, then I think it becomes much stronger. It's not quite as witty as I would necessarily like it to be, or as I think our next movie, A Murder by Death, is. But he does let the actors really go, especially in that second half, and do whatever they want. So I think that's one of the reasons why the second half is much stronger than the first half. His best movie is probably My Cousin Vinny. Yeah, that's a great film. And it has, I think, much better pacing and timing. But this movie was his first movie. The screenplay is by Jonathan Lynn and John Landis. Given what it is starting with, which is, hey, this is going to be based off this board game. All we have to work with here are these six character names and these six weapons that have to be incorporated into the plot. 
I feel like that is a tough place to start, honestly. I really appreciate how much thought went into the script. There are a lot of obvious choices that were not made, which I appreciate, right down to the fact that nobody's wearing the colors that they're given as their pseudonyms. And yet, somehow, if you are a stickler and you want all of those elements to come to fruition, particularly with the fact that each weapon gets used, it does. It satisfies those things. When I saw this when I was nine years old, all of the historical setting in terms of, you know, setting it during McCarthyism and Washington politics and the blackmail went completely over my head. I think now it's humorous to me how many digs it takes at capitalism and how much fun it makes of everyone in the room being offended by socialists. I think we'll get into this more because we will be comparing the two movies and their approach to the humor in the second one. I do appreciate that they had a real problem. Clue is not really a movie kind of game because of the way the game is played. You don't figure it out by the way a detective would figure out who the killer is. You figure it out by asking questions of other people who have certain cards. It's a deduction game. It's not a game of detection. Right. So how do you actually even make a movie? out of a game like this and stick with Clue. They do it by not really sticking with Clue. They just reference it a lot. And John Landis, of course, is very successful at directing and writing or co-writing a lot of crowd-pleasing movies. Blues Brothers, Animal House, American Werewolf in Paris, Training Places. He's not a great writer. He's not a great director. He gives people a lot of enjoyment. I really enjoy his films. They're a good time in the theater. It's always interesting when there's a a collaborative process on a story and a script in terms of what Landis was bringing to the table and what Jonathan Lynn was bringing to the table. They seem like very different people in terms of their careers, but wanting it to be funny, I feel like, is probably their best meeting ground. True. And of course, Jonathan Landis's career was very successful, but then there was the tragic Twilight Zone episode where Vic Morrow and two children were killed. That didn't really stop his career, but somewhere after he was involved with the music video thriller with Michael Jackson, then his career started tapering off. He had a hard time coming up with films that were that successful or that notable, Coming to America being the big exception. Which ending is your favorite? I saw this in the theaters in 1985. I saw ending A, which is when Scarlett the perpetrator. As a kid, I was completely obsessed with the fact that different movie theaters around me had different endings. (laughs) And they actually listed them in the newspaper. You could try to catch a different ending by looking in the paper and seeing, okay, this theater has ending C or, or whatnot. And then, of course, when it came out on VHS, you could watch all of them stacked up next to each other. I definitely feel like ending B is the weakest, the Peacock ending. There's just not a lot of explanation that goes into it. And then ending C, I think, is the most preposterous in a way, but it has some of the best parts of the entire movie in it. (laughs) So I guess I would have to go with C for entertainment value. I think most people think A is the strongest ending. What I find interesting about C and find it the most intriguing is that each person killed one of the people that got killed. Right. So they're all basically murderers, except for it's Michael McKean, isn't it? Correct, the, yeah. For the FBI. Correct. But I do think the strongest aspect of the film probably is the acting. Do you have a favorite out of them? I know you've mentioned some already. I'm a huge Madeline Kahn fan, particularly in her Mel Brooks movies. I find her characterization here to be so delightful because it's so different from so many other comedic roles that she played. They're just reactions and line readings that she gives that are so unexpected and perfect for the character. Who knows how this character was created on the screen or how she was directed by Lynn, but I really feel like she is most likely elevating what was put on the page in what she created on set, basically. Well, I agree with you. Madeline Kahn is my favorite. I don't think she's the funniest, but that's because she's playing a role where she's very reserved. She doesn't really say much. She doesn't have as many lines as other people have. The flames on the side of my face that she talks about in one of the endings. Yeah, ending C. Was made up by her. She improvised that. 
when I learned that, I think I started to analyze her performance in this and wonder how many of those choices came from improv. She just has some really funny choices in certain scenes, particularly reactions. I just doubt that they were scripted. I always like Eileen Brennan. She almost feels sorry for her because she's trying to be the perfect hostess and she just can't. It's an impossible situation for her. She's both very funny, but at the same time, I'm going, yeah, you, this isn't the best place to be the perfect hostess. I agree. It might be one of my favorite performances of her career. There's just so much anxiety <laughs> in it, and she doesn't usually get to play those kind of roles. She usually plays women who are very much in control rather than teetering on the edge of not being in control. So much fun watching her on screen as well. She's the only one, of course, who was in both of these movies. And then I think Tim Curry works very hard to keep it all together. I don't think anything else would work if he wasn't there to just keep it all going. I agree. I feel like it's definitely one of those roles where it's very difficult to imagine anyone else playing that role. As we mentioned before, he does certain things, particularly in, in those last 15 minutes that are so iconically hilarious that really make the movie. I feel like it's hard to imagine somebody else pulling it off the same way. They first thought of using Rowan Atkinson. Actually, Rowan Atkinson was the second person that they were concerning for the role. But then decided they needed a bigger name. I think this really helped Curry because he had a very difficult time after doing Rocky Horror Picture Show because he got hyped in that role and he just couldn't seem to break through. And he did work steadily, but perhaps didn't really have the career that he might have had. Which is a shame, honestly. The cinematographer is Werner J. Klimper, who worked on some very unusual movies early on. He did Alice's Restaurant, The Hospital, The Candidate, Dog Day Afternoon. And then at around the time of this movie, his output started being a lot less interesting. And he had one big clunker with Xanadu. A lot of people had problems recovering from Xanadu. <laughs> and almost deservedly so. But you did mention the music. John Morris did the music. He worked on a lot of Mel Brooks films, and he got Oscar nominations for the song for Blazing Saddles and the score for The Elephant Man. He also did Young Frankenstein. He, in fact, he did all but two of Mel Brooks's films. And I very much enjoy the score. It's in many ways very Bernard Herrmann. It is. I feel like the score is very thoughtful in terms of how it's being used, when it's being used. It sets the scene really wonderfully as each character is introduced in the beginning. It plus Tim Curry really elevate the end of the film. It actually does a lot of heavy lifting. I love all of his scores. I think his score in Young Frankenstein is fantastic. I love the hilarious songs and Blazing Saddles. It's unfortunate that when composers are specializing in comedies, we'll never get the recognition that they deserve because comedy is seen as a lowbrow form that's not going to get Oscar nominations, you know, hence why the only score that he wrote was that he got a nomination for was the Elephant Man. It was and, produced by Mel Brooks, which is probably one right. of the reasons why he did the music. Yes, for. I bet that he appreciated getting a chance to break out of comedy thanks to Mel Brooks. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $15 million to make and made $14.5 at the box office. It was a failure, but has since gained a very large cult following. It was the first movie based on a board game. A fourth ending was filmed, but Lynn removed it later because, as he stated, it really wasn't very good. In the unused fourth ending, Watts committed all of the murders, motivated by his desire for perfection. The singing telegram girl was played by Jane Wheedland, best known as the rhythm guitarist of the Go-Go's. Lee Ving, as Mr. Body, is the front man of the punk rock band Fear. Hill House is named for Deborah Hill, the producer, though Hill House is also the house in the movie The Haunting. Clue was filmed on sound stages at Paramount Pictures. The interior sets were made up of authentic 18th and 19th century furnishings, often rented from private collections, including the estate of Theodore Roosevelt. After completion, the set was bought by the producers of Dynasty, who used it as the fictional hotel, the Carlton. All interior scenes were filmed at the Paramount lot, with the exception of the ballroom scene. The ballroom, as well as the driveway gate exteriors, were filmed on location at a mansion located in South Pasadena, California, which I believe later burned down. Professor Plum indicates at dinner that he works for the World Health Organization. 
part of the United Nations organization. This means he works for You Know Who. In 1944, Pratt, who created the game, Pluto, applied for a patent of his game. It was originally named Murder. Shortly thereafter, he and his wife, Elva, presented it to Waddington's executive, Norma Watson, who purchased it and provided its trademark name of Cluedo, which is a play on Clue and the game Ludo. In Canada and the U.S., the game is known as Clue. It was retitled because the traditional British board game Ludo, on which the name is based, was less well-known than its American variant Parcheesi. Universal Studios announced in 2011 that a new film based on the game was being developed. The film was initially dropped, then resumed, as Hasbro teamed up with Gord Verbinski to produce and direct. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is Murder by Death. First, some information about the film. Murder by Death is an American comedy mystery film released in 1976. It was directed by Robert Moore and written by Neil Simon. It stars Peter Sellers, Richard Narita, David Niven, Maggie Smith, James Coco, James Cromwell, Peter Falk, Eileen Brennan, Elsa Lanchester, Estelle Winwood, Alec Guinness, Nancy Walken, Truman Capote, Faye Ray, and Myron the Dog. It's 1947. A rich, eccentric Lionel Twain invites the five greatest detectives in the world to his home for dinner. After sealing off the house so they can't leave, he tells them that a murder will occur at midnight and he will give them a million dollars to anyone who can solve it. The purpose being that he thinks no one will be able to and he will prove that it's he himself who is actually the world's greatest detective. Before beginning with the movie in general, I thought we'd talk about a subject that you actually brought up when we were corresponding about which movie to choose. You know, after you chose Clue, I was going through a lot of various possibilities to pair it with, and Murder by Death just seemed to come back to me over and over again. But I was concerned about them both being too pop culture. And then you mentioned something about Clue being more lowbrow and Murder by Death being more highbrow. And I thought we would talk about that concept, what makes something highbrow and lowbrow. I don't wish to use the term as pejorative. I may gravitate toward highbrow, but highbrow is not necessarily any better than lowbrow. I like some lowbrow movies better than highbrow and some highbrow better than lowbrow. But what do you think makes a movie lowbrow and highbrow? I feel like in this particular argument, it really is a matter of pedigree in the way that it has been assembled and put together and presented to you as a sanctioned, culturally relevant work by the greatest artists of our time. I feel like that packaging of people that are esteemed within the culture as creating the best of culture by critics and whatnot. That makes, for me, this particular film maybe more highbrow than Clue, which was produced by the producer of Halloween and then John Landis, who did Kentucky Fried Movie. It doesn't have, quote unquote, the great American cultural figures of our time in front of and behind the lens. I think also that the approach to humor is also a little different. We were talking about postmodernism and post-postmodernism. In many ways, when it comes to Clue, the only real postmodernism aspect of it is that it's based on the sport game Clue. It doesn't really go much beyond that. They put it during the McCarthy sphere, but it barely touches on that. I sometimes think the jokes are rather standard, but when we get to Murder by Death, and we'll talk about this a bit more when you talk about the screenplay, it's much more meta. It's not just a murder mystery. It's a comment on not just murder mystery movies. It's a comment on murder mystery books. It's a comment on each particular private detective that they're satirizing. It's a comment on why we like these stories and why we don't. So I think from that perspective, a murder by death reaches much further into this postmodernism aspect of it and has the larger target. I agree with that. It's a film ostensibly about the making of culture, right? Because of that meta aspect, which we'll probably touch upon when we talk about the ending. Oh, that ending. Yes. <laughs> Whereas Clue is not really concerned with that as much. It's more of a standard murder mystery comedy rather than something that is trying to comment on the murder mystery comedy. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? In watching Murder by Death, I was actually shocked by how many plot similarities there are between the two films. Obviously, they both rely on the ensemble, obviously both ensembles, actors that are chewing up the scenery. So the comparison between the two is very high in looking at the bones or the different elements that you can correlate between the two of them. It's a very spot on pairing to look at the two. And honestly, I feel like there's a certain level 
level where I'm interested in knowing from Clue's perspective, which isn't that much later, I think it's only nine years later it comes out, how much they liked Murder by Death and wanted to take pieces from it or emulate it in different ways. That's, of course, very difficult to say because both movies are taking tropes from the same source. So it's hard to say was Clue influenced by Murder by Death or was Clue influenced by the same movies that Murder by Death was influenced by. And it's hard to say. Of course, since Clue does come later, it certainly must have had some impact, even if it's not consciously. Absolutely. And to your point, particularly looking at Agatha Christie, because so many of her works are ensemble works, both films follow that same Agatha Christie template. When did you first see the film? Shockingly, I thought that I had seen it before, but when I watched it, I had not seen it before. So this is my first time. I got it confused with Something's Afoot, which is a murder mystery comedy play that I saw when I was a kid and was obsessed with. Not only was it my first time seeing it, but then also I was really taken by the number of similarities between the two films. What did you think of it? For me, it didn't work well. It didn't age well, if that makes sense. Obviously, there are some issues with it in terms of its portrayal of disability and race, and they were pretty hard to get over because they were such a huge part of the film. Obviously, isn't the first time that we've seen Peter Sellers in Yellowface before, but knowing that it was going to be the majority of the film was pretty hard, and I think it made it even harder that Richard Narita is Asian and he's his sidekick. I spent a lot of time thinking about what was going through his mind as a person on this set because there's so much punching down with every sort of aspect is highlighting either the broken English or the stereotypes around Asian people. And so that was hard for me to get over, honestly. I love the conceit of putting spoof versions of all of these famous fictional detectives together. I thought that was very clever. I thought the meta nature in which it goes to in the end was also clever, but not entertaining. It was a bit of a deus ex machina to get out of the story rather than having a satisfying solution to the murder mystery. And then those actors are incredible. They're some of the greatest actors who have ever been on the screen before. And so seeing all of them in this movie together, it was a delight. And it also really, I think, shows the power of Neil Simon of that era, that Neil Simon was such a powerhouse that he could write this script and you get all those actors immediately to appear in your star-studded film, including Truman Capote. (laughs) Who they actually were talking about removing at one point and replacing him with someone else. During production? I think it was actually during production, but they decided not to. Uh, Probably because he was the only non-actor, and it's very obvious he's the only non-actor in the film. I think you bring up a lot of very good points, and some of these we'll actually get back to, especially what is often called problematic elements of films today. I first saw it while in college, and this actually may be my fourth viewing. may only be my third. In many ways, I do think it still holds up, but I'm not sure it quite has the energy I remember it having. I remember it having a lot more tempo than when I saw it this time. It does have an incredible cast. The humor is intelligent and clever, at least until the end, as you say, and we'll talk more about that later. But yes, there are certain aspects of it that don't quite work as well, maybe as we remember them. Do you have any favorite scenes? I wouldn't say that I had particularly favorite scenes as much as there were a couple of performances that I really enjoyed. I thought Estelle Winwood stole the scenes for me as the nurse. I also feel like James Coco and Peter Falk had some really fun moments in the film. I would say that those were sort of the limits in terms of my laughter. I felt a lot of it was clever versus funny. My favorite scene is when Yetta runs in screaming. Oh, yes. <laughs> this was actually a private joke that I and a friend had because we would often imitate that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just start screaming like her. But I agree with a lot of others. There are some individual moments and lines. And one of my favorite is when Milo Perrier says, I'm a Belgie, not a Frenchie. Yes. <laughs> Just 
something that Hercule Poirot always had to correct people on right. in the books. And then when Perrier suddenly reappears in the butler's clothing and he says, don't ask or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, James Coco definitely had some fantastic moments and lines in the film. Nancy Walker, this set me down a rabbit hole watching her. And I was like, oh, I forgot how much I really enjoy her as a comedic actress. I didn't realize that she directed the notorious can't stop the music you didn't know that I had no oh, idea god that i was... had no idea that film fascinates me endlessly it's just so bizarre and it's so unbelievably queer while it's presenting itself as a g-rated not queer film i'm even more fascinated now that that was her directorial <laughs> debut as a filmmaker well yes yeah, she did do some directing in the television shows that she was in but it is one of those things where you're going why would anybody ask now Nancy Walker to direct Can't Stop the Music. Who had that idea? Yes. yes. <laughs> the direction is Robert Moore. I would say there's nothing particular about it, but I feel like the challenges are the same challenges that Lynn had to face in that you have a lot of exposition, a lot of jokes. They all have to land right. You have a giant cast of extremely talented well-known actors that you need to feature all at the same time so that nobody is the weak part of the film. I can't even imagine in this particular film, the egos were in that room. <laughs> I feel like it's serviceable rather than notable, if that makes sense. Yes. I remember it being much tighter when I first saw it when I was in college. doesn't quite feel as tight here. He does go on to direct The Cheap Detective, which is also a Neil Simon spoof of Humphrey Bogart movies. And that is actually much tighter. It's much better directed from that perspective. And in many ways, it's a much better movie because the satire is even sharper than here. But I do like this movie, but I do recognize the limitations of it as well. Robert Moore is actually best known for directing the voice in the band on stage. He also did The Cheap Detective, as well as Neil Simon's Chapter 2. So he only directed three films. He did direct and act for television, but he died in 1984 from AIDS-related pneumonia. I think I agree with you. He gets the job done. Yes. He is good at letting the actors do their thing. And I think often the comic timing is a bit better than in Clue. But he was never more than a solid working director. He never broke out and became that well-known. And then he died, fortunately, prematurely. And then we get to the screenplay by Neil Simon. And it is interesting to note that the credits at the beginning say this is Neil Simon's Murder by Death. <laughs> so I think we know what's going on there. But uh, I think I would start out by asking, though I think in some ways we've covered this, people who like Clue seem to dislike Murder by Death. And people who like Murder by Death seem to dislike Clue. I was wondering why you thought that might be, or if you had some insight into that. Because I know all my friends who are younger than me, they love Clue, but when they watch Murder by Death, they're not really that excited. When the movie came out, Murder by Death was rather successful. Yeah, I wonder if I can slightly pivot that to just talking about the legacy of Neil Simon's work. When I was growing up, I was a theater kid, so I was in a lot of shows, particularly in the 1980s. Every single theater was always doing something that was Neil Simon. I feel like that was still the case in the early 90s. And then a lot of Simon's work didn't date well. The strange thing about this comparison between these two, when you're looking at it from a theater lens, is that I see community theater productions of Clue, where they've adapted the screenplay of Clue and put it on in their local theater all the time. It's always popping up on my Facebook. Whereas I can't tell you the last time that I saw any theater mount a production of a Neil Simon play. I wonder if part of what's happened here is that his work didn't age as well as other comedians work, like Mel Brooks, for instance. I guess I wonder if it's more of a product of its time in terms of its comedy rather than something that is timeless. You may have said something there that does strike a chord with me. A lot of my friends have no idea what it's satirizing. They haven't read Agatha Christie novels. They haven't seen them. They haven't read a lot of the hard-boiled detective novels or seen a Charlie Chan film, which that is fine. Just to your point, even something like Nick and Nora, which everybody's had seen The Thin Man or the sequels a million times, are I definitely feel like they've left the cultural landscape in terms of what that even is referencing. 
with Clue, though, they don't really make that many jokes that need a cultural context for it. So it's easier to enjoy Clue on that basis. You don't really have to know anything about the McCarthy hearings because even though they reference it, it doesn't really play a part. But if you haven't seen these movies, if you haven't read these books, then you might have a hard time getting into these. When you get to The Cheap Detective, Neil Simon was a bit better at making jokes that are just funny because they're funny. Well, at the same time, they're also funny because of what they're satirizing. And I'm not sure he quite got that here. And that may be why. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So many of the jokes are completely from the characters. Again, going back to Nick and Nora, the fact that we find them with martini glasses in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) He says, could you walk Myron farther away? In the movies, the running joke is that Esther was always finding a fire hydrant. Right. <laughs> and right. my favorite line is Perrier saying, I'm not a Frenchie, I'm a Belgie, but who's going to know what that means? It literally doesn't make sense if you don't know the, the reference. And those are some of the best jokes in the film, the ones that are, as you say, require the cultural knowledge of where they came from. You're really out to see if you have not consumed those texts. That's always very hard when it comes to satire, because when you satirize these things, is there still going to be enough cultural content? context later on do you actually need it when woody allen does love and death it's very very specific what he's satirizing but the way he satirizes it it's funny without you having to know all yeah these and i think maybe that's the trick you still have to produce something that is funny and entertaining no matter and what it's like extra delicious gravy to put references on top of that so that the people who are quote unquote in the know get that heightened experience out of watching the film You did talk about some problematic issues, one of them being the jokes made about Alec Guinness being blind. W.C. Fields does the same thing in one of his earlier films when a blind man comes into his shop and it's just a nightmare. And it is hard to say. Would you be able to get away with that today? I don't know. I don't know how blind people, whether they would actually find that funny or not. The issue with Sidney Wang is a bit more difficult in a way because this is satire. So it is satirizing not just the character, but the racial attitudes. He was played by white men. He was not played by Asians, but his sons were played by Asians. And when Lionel Twain says, use your prepositions. You're a Harvard educated man. I can't believe that you can only speak pidgin English. But that is the way that Charlie Chen spoke. So it's a little hard for me to decide whether that works or not, whether you can only see it as a commentary on the racial attitudes at the time that the Charlie Chan, not just that, also the Mr. Moto, and there's one other, Barskoloff does one as well. So that one's always been a little more difficult to me. And it may not work anymore, even as a commentary on that. For me, is that there is no external commentary on the racialism of the racial jokes. What would have made that successful is if someone had actually addressed this problematic history of this problematic aspect as part of the humor within the film. But because it goes unchecked and it's just presented, it becomes a real problem. Whereas in Blazing Saddles, it is constantly commented on throughout the entire film film. Yes, but you do make some interesting points about Neil Simon, and I'm also wondering whether he is going to really last much longer or is lasting now. As you said, you don't see very many productions of his plays anymore. If it wasn't for high schools and local theaters, little theaters, non-professional theaters, would anybody be doing them at all, with the exceptions of the musicals? Because musicals always seem to be very, very Yeah, Sweet Charity might be his legacy, so... He did try to become a more serious writer when he did plays like Lost in Yonkers and then his Brighton trilogy. Right, um, the, the Eugene trilogy. I'd have to have a good reason to go out and see The Odd Couple, which might be the only one I would really want to see. When I think of them, I have more fondness towards the more dramatic ones. But I really feel like The Odd Couple, it's such a clever, funny concept that is probably going to be his greatest text but, but like you know, Woody Allen, he always had trouble writing diverse characters. His world is a very, very white, privileged world. And when he tried, wasn't quite that convincing. And Woody Allen has the same problem. Allen has even said that he doesn't do it because that's not his world, which is and isn't an excuse. That's maybe a, a greater challenge with comedy 
is the writer writing something that transcends all those identities and can be relatable and funny forever? Or are you really harnessing a lot of your comedy on a specific identity? And if you are, it may not stand the test of time because of that. Right. And I do agree about the ending. It feels like an ending that's used because they couldn't figure out how to end it. It definitely felt like that. I somewhat appreciated the absurdity of this meta moment that happens where suddenly who basically calls out the literary characters for their own tropes. It's really kind of a mind bend at that moment because they themselves didn't write themselves. Yes, he does say, you've done this, you've done this. And you're right. They didn't write these stories. They're just characters in them. Right. It suddenly turns the detectives into authors authors, which is bizarre. But it definitely feels like all of this cleverness of the conceit of putting all of these fictional characters together, that it was a room he painted himself into and couldn't quite figure out how to get out of. But you've talked about your favorite of the actors. Watching Peter Falk in this was so funny. He's really on fire in this this movie. The way that he chews up the scenery really makes sense to me now that you mentioned it, that they did an entirely new film with his character. My favorite is Maggie Smith. She even gets laughs for me out of lines that aren't really funny, like when she says, oh, I like her. I really, really like her. And I'm going, you know, that's that's not a funny line, but when she says it, it's very funny. Yeah. Estelle Wood is absolutely hysterical. And Alec Guinness just seems to be having a lot of fun playing the kind of role he's never played before. Even if it may be offensive, he's really, really good at it. And in fact, I think Neil Simon said, you want us to change any of the lines? We'll do that. And he says, well, no, I'm having too much fun. It's funny because one of the episodes I've listened to recently was your one on the Bridge on the River Kwai. It's just so delightful to watch him in comedies because his legacy seems to be solidified by his drama at this point. Kind Hearts and Coronets is one of my favorite films, and he's so delightful in that because he gets to play so many different roles. Knowing that he started in comedy is just true to who he is as an actor. That's just what he enjoyed doing. I don't know whether it's good or not that his lasting legacy will probably be Star Wars, the one role that he didn't look back on that fondly, and then movies like The Bridge Over the River Kwai. David M. Walsh did the photographer. He was a very successful photographer of comedies. He worked on many of the Neil Simon movies, but he also did films like The In-Laws, Foul Play. So even if the movies were not necessarily great, he seemed to know where to put the camera in order to get the most laughs. It's funny because in both of these films, I feel like the cinematography is just in terms of how far we've come with being okay with comedies not being lit like a bright Christmas tree. (laughs) Both of these films could have benefited from more contrast, shall we say. They're both very clearly, very standardly lit. It can be very hard to do a lot visually when you're stuck in small locations. Absolutely. The music was by Dave Grusin, which in many ways is similar to Clue, but I think it has more of the British comedy films of the 1950s than Bernard Herrmann. It's almost reminiscent of the Miss Marple movies with Margaret Rutherford but the music's a lot of fun. It is. Again, I'm so fascinated by the link between these films because there were definitely cues in the score that felt very Clue-like, while Clue gets a a lot more on the Bernard Herrmann end, as you point out. There are a lot of interesting similarities between the two scores. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. It made $32,511,047 at the box office. But I'm not sure how much it cost to make, but uh, my understanding is that it was a success. An additional scene not in the theatrical version, but shown in some television versions, shows Sherlock Holmes, Keith McConnell, and Dr. Watson, Richard Peel, arriving as the other guests are leaving. Arthur Ron Haydock states that in an early draft of the script, Neil Simon featured Holmes and Watson actually solving the mystery. Then their roles were reduced to a cameo appearance and finally deleted as the lead actors felt they were being upstaged. If anybody is wondering where Faye Ray is in the movie, as I mentioned her as one of the actors, at the beginning. The scream heard as the doorbell is archival audio of the 1930s star Faye Ray screaming, apparently from King Kong. That's so funny because I was, oh, I've heard that scream, but I don't know where. (laughs) (laughs) Charles Adams, creator of the Adams Family, drew the art and characters displayed at the beginning and during the end credits, as well as on the poster. This was the 
first feature film for director Robert Moore. It was the final theatrical movie of Estelle Winwood. It was the final theatrical movie of Nancy Walker. And it was the theatrical movie debut of James Cromwell. With that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a movie or two to go along with your film that you thought might interest our audience. These are two more ensemble murder mystery comedies. The first is Gosford Park, which is screenplay by Julian Fellows and directed by, of course, Robert Altman. I love Robert Altman ensemble films where they're just dripping in cynicism. And this is definitely one of them with a pretty amazing ensemble cast. It's a whodunit where the answer is who cares, which is one of one of the only murder mysteries that has taken that approach. The film itself shrugs its shoulders as to who actually is the killer. And then the other film is Knives Out, the Ryan Johnson film. It's another amazing ensemble cast that is just chewing up the scenery in every single film. Has a really tight, funny, fun script and is definitely taking a page from Clue. I have chosen four old dark house and locked room murder stories. The first one is The Old Dark House, which is the 1932 pre-code film directed by James Whale, based on a novel by J.P. Priestley, in which on a dark and stormy night, various people get stranded at a remote house with a very, very, very odd family, to say the least. So there's some really interesting actors in this. Charles Lawton, Gloria Stewart, Boris Karloff, Melvin Douglas. The 1945 adaptation of Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, directed by Renee Clare, has a group of people invited to a mansion on a remote island where they are trapped as people are being killed off one by one in accordance to a nursery rhyme. Another adaptation of an Agatha Christie mystery, Murder on the Orient Express from 1974, directed by Cindy LeMay, has an all-star cast stuck on a snowbound train. When one of the passengers is killed, it's up to the great Hercule Poirot, who is a Belgian, not a Frenchie, to solve <laughs> the strange murder. And finally, a television episode, season nine, episode one of The Family Guy, and then there were fewer about all the main characters of the animated series being invited to a remote mansion by James Woods. Murder is served as the appetizer. <laughs> so what is next? What should we be expecting from you? I'm working on another independent film script and then also a TV pilot script. I have nothing official to announce yet, but you can check out my film Dramarama, which again has a clue homage in its opening on iTunes, Amazon, or Google Play. I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, or Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, and I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was with blogger and podcaster Todd Liebenau, where we discussed Tombstone and My Darling Clementine, two very different movies about the Wyatt Earp legend. For the next episode, blogger and film critic Rishab Vashistha and I will be taking an unusual approach to the Valentine's Day episode by talking about Warm Bodies and I Walked with a Zombie, two love stories revolving around the living dead. With that, Jonathan, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Oh, thank you. This was such a delight. I really love this entire concept in your show and your research and everything. It's so much fun.